Well, thank you so much, Kevin. And uh, thank you to the kids who are heading out and to volunteers who are helping them later. I, I think you'll be able to find your children later on uh, after the service. So always glad to see them enjoying their time. Well, welcome uh, here to part two of a nine-part series we're calling Power. If I didn't introduce myself before, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here. It's always great to see you. Thank you for making your way here to GPC. Uh, you may or may not know this, but just this past Friday, there was a new uh, movie release called, I'm going to try to get this right, Chappaquiddick. Does that ring a bell, anybody? If you are a historian or uh, into politics at all, that might ring a bell for you completely. Chappaquiddick is actually the name of a place, uh, an island in Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken. The reason it's turned into a movie is because in 1969, then-Senator Ted Kennedy was going to a party with female staffers on the island of Chappaquiddick, and on his way across a bridge, he actually drove his car off of this narrow bridge and into uh, the water below. And in that moment, he was able to, to get himself free from the car that was filling with water, but he did not either try or was not able to rescue the young lady next to him, and she drowned in the car, and he didn't report the incident for 10 hours, which created a lot of space for the questions that you might have in your mind or that I might have in mind, like, what really happened there, Ted? And I know you're a senator, but you have a future ambition of presidential uh, levels, so what happened? And Chappaquiddick is a movie about the problem of power. It's a, a movie about the problem of what happens when your reputation and your power is put at odds with an issue of integrity and an issue of morality and ethics. Now, to be fair, I am not a judge of that moment because I wasn't there, nor actually was anyone else. There were no witnesses to this reality, but it did happen. And Chappaquiddick has become a, a metaphor, especially in the political world, for the issues that people have that they try to um, keep at bay from destroying or torpedoing their career. So in that moment in 1969, when Kennedy drove the car off the bridge and this young lady dies and he doesn't report it for 10 hours... In that moment, then there's a crisis in the PR team. And all of his close, um, you know, uh, friends, what have you, kind of come around Ted at that time and try to manage the situation. Because you can imagine the headlines that would be. And you can imagine the headaches that would come with the headlines that would associate with that problem. What is going on here, Ted? What happened? How can we trust you as a senator of our country? How can we trust you with your future ambitions? I mean, help us process this. And he's advised in all kinds of ways, but ultimately he continues on. He's encouraged to resign, but he doesn't. He believes that everyone has their incidents. Moses had his. Jesus had his. I have my Chappaquiddick. And here's what an author, Brett McCracken, had to say about this just this past week. McCracken was writing a very insightful article on the Gospel Coalition blog, and he said this, We live in a world where power is often understood in Darwinian terms of strength and self-preservation. In other words, Darwin will say, uh, survival of the fittest. The fittest species will continue to advance. The person with the most power in your organization or in our political world will continue to advance. And so the only way to advance is to be more powerful than the people around you. And so the people around you who are weak, who can be jettisoned, who can be bought off or whatever, they are merely pawns in the greater reality that power is a matter of Darwin's theory of evolution. The powerful survive. The weak do not. So McCracken says this, we live in a world where power is often understood in those terms of self-preservation and Darwinian terms. 
fighting doggedly to maintain one's power and doing whatever it takes to survive, even if it comes at the cost of another's suffering. He says, we see this everywhere, including in ourselves, but politics is perhaps the most obvious arena for its display. Having achieved the heights of power, many politicians are desperate to keep it come what may. They respond to scandals with spin. They blame shift on Twitter. They silence or discredit accusers. They avoid admitting fault or acknowledging flaws, lest they appear weak. And this is all in response to the movie, by the way. And Chappaquiddick is about, he writes, the failure of integrity and the failure to accept the consequences of sin. But it's also about the disgusting outworking of Darwinian power, which discards the weak and justifies all manner of corruption, such as lies, cover-ups, non-disclosure agreements, and payoffs in the name of self-preservation. It's a film that asks us, and we Christians need urgently to hear this point, whether we too would choose self-preservation over integrity if our status and power were at stake. Then he finishes with this insightful quote. He says this, worldly power corrupts in part because it demands self-preservation, and self-preservation leads to all sorts of bad things. He's exactly right. It does. Lance Armstrong is a prototypical example of this. Worldly power corrupts because of self-preservation. If you know Lance's story, seven-time Tour de France winner, American cyclist, who year after year after year after year after year repeatedly resisted these notions that he was doping. Well, all the time he was. But it required in his legacy to continue that he lie about it and destroy people along the way. Why? To preserve himself. At a personal level, if anyone has an older sibling, if anyone has an older sibling, and you're sitting around, you're playing on a Saturday afternoon in your room or their room with an older sibling, and all of a sudden, you start the room on fire, whatever it is. You, you throw your shoe across the room and the lamp breaks, or you know, there's a fight, or someone steps on the Lego piece, or whatever. But there's some like minor chaos in the room, and mom comes down the hall, and you know she's coming, or dad comes. And so what does the older sibling do? Sorry, mom, it was my fault. No, 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 no. Immediately, just instinctively, the finger gets pointed at the younger one. Like, it was, it was their fault, Mom. It, it was their, like, they did that. They threw their shoe, and it was my shoe, but they threw my shoe across the room. I mean, that, because instinctively, we don't even need to be taught that self-preservation is an extension of our pride. It's an extension of our desire to have power serve us rather than to use our power to serve the people around us. And this is exactly why power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is what Lord Acton talked about back in the late 1800s. This problem of self-preservation is profound and it is real. And we are living in a world, in a nation, and in an area here in our world where this problem of power is significant. So if we're going to be a church in the town square, the town square is a town square in which I would argue that our children, the next generation of people who are kind of coming up here, are confused, are getting mixed signals about how one should use one's power. All they need to do is turn on their phones, see their Insta feeds, see their Twitter feeds, see what's going on in the world, and it does not take long for them to see model after model after model after model after model of people self-preserving. Always, 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 always. And the question is, what is the church's message in the middle of that? Come on, is this, is this the best that we can do? Because it's not just politicians who are caught up in this, by the way. It is Christian leaders who have failed who have fallen, who have created distance between us and them, and in that space have fallen into the same thing. And this issue of how do you and how do I use our power is profound. I don't want us to, by default, 
lean into our instincts because our instincts will simply be, I'm going to preserve myself without realizing all of what I am doing. And this is why when we started the series last week, we started looking at this little episode in Jesus' life where he interacted with a couple of disciples, James and John. And they came and they, they talked to him and they said, Jesus, hey, when it comes time for you to be in your glory because you have a kingdom, right? Like you're the Messiah, like you have all kinds of people gathered around you, right? Like you're a powerful guy. When it comes time for you to establish your kingdom, just do us a favor. Can one of us be on your right and one be on your left, which is a perfect model of self-preservation. Like we want our legacies preserved. I mean, we have friends, but who cares? We want to be in those positions. To which Jesus says, listen, you know how it works in the world. The Gentiles lord it over people with their authority. But this isn't how it works in my kingdom. It's not how it works. In fact, I didn't come... I didn't come to be served, because that's how the Gentiles work, right? Like, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And in that statement, in that moment, Jesus clarifies for us a completely different way of using our power and influence. That I don't come just to bring the power to me that I can preserve myself, but I actually come to use my influence to serve those around me. A drastically different way of approaching this. And this is why, when we think about this series on power, that we even have the image that we do. Because this kind of power image, this power that we talk about with Jesus, comes from the model of his death, burial, and resurrection. And out of death comes life. And out of a desire to put my interests down in front of yours comes life and real service. And so I want to take you, for the next eight weeks, I want to take you to a mountainside with Jesus, to a hillside. Jesus is a great teacher. He's a profound teacher, and I want to go slow with you for the next eight weeks through a a teaching that he gave to hundreds, if not thousands of people on the the hillside there um, in in Israel, and he he was gathering all these people around him, and they were following him, Then he had something to say to them. And if you've been in church before, you may know some of the things that he's going to say. If you haven't, then this is going to be great. I hope it's great exposure for you. But we're going to go slow, one verse at a time for the next eight weeks walking through with patience, with intentionality, some things that Jesus had to say that to me are an incredibly profound insight into how he thinks that power works in his kingdom, in his way, not how power works in our kingdom or in our way. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible near you in the pew around you. It's our gift to you. If you don't own one, by the way, we'd love to have you take that with you. Um, And Matthew chapter 5 is the first book in what we call the New Testaments in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Matthew is a little letter written by um, a tax collector. Uh, Matthew, not the most popular person on the planet, but uh, nonetheless he wrote this uh, record of Jesus' ministry and and life. And in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to pick up here as we begin this morning. Matthew 5, verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. And and now when he saw the crowds, speaking about Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to pause it right there for this morning. When he saw the crowds, verse 1, you go back, you don't, 
if you go back in the in Matthew into chapter four, you'll see that Jesus was doing incredible miracles, teachings, healings. Now, he was the hot thing, right? He was he was the guy that people wanted to come see, and people were tracking with him and following him. And he had crowds, he had people, he had power, he had influence. And he came and he sat on a mountainside. When all the people were gathered, all the people were there, he began, and this is what he began teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an interesting statement to begin. I want to think for a minute about that word blessed. This is an important word, blessed. Some of you, I think, are going, who are going to the Dominican Republic this, this year are going to work with an organization called Makarios. Makarios is actually a Greek word that means blessed or fulfilled or happy, which is the exact word used here. So the idea of this word is that you are fulfilled, you are happy, you find your satisfaction in what I'm teaching you from, not me, but Jesus, right? Like, you will find that space in your life that you will be fulfilled, you will be happy, satisfied, you'll find a joy in this space. When you do and act in this way, you're going to be blessed this way. This is a very important starting point, because listen... The people that he's talking to, many of whom are Jews, not all of them are Jews, some are Gentiles for sure, but they would certainly be used to Judaism, certainly be used to the laws of Judaism, the regulations of how you follow God and how you connect with him. And here's what Jesus is doing, I believe. He's setting up this idea of blessed, and and the idea of this blessing picks up where the law leaves off. Like the the law will take you so far, but it won't take you further. Like the law will take you, if all you do is obey the law, the weight of the law is profound and relentless. Great that you obeyed the law this week. Imagine that when you drove to church building here this morning, that you actually went the speed limit. Imagine that that actually happened for a minute. I know, vivid imaginations for some of us, okay? But imagine that that actually was the case. And you actually drove the speed limit, and you felt a level of satisfaction that you fulfilled the law coming here. Well, here's the problem. It's relentless. You have to drive home. We're not keeping you here overnight. You better continue to obey that speed limit. Like, it, it never stops. And so you don't find joy in fulfilling the law. You don't find fulfillment in fulfilling the law. You don't find happiness in fulfilling the law because the law is a terrible master, and its weight is relentless and strong and powerful. And this idea of blessedness picks up where the law leaves off. All the law is capable of doing is showing you where you fail and where I fail. That's all the law can do for you. It can show you, yeah, the speed limit was 35 on Route 30. Not sure who came up with that. But, you know, I was going 40, whatever it comes. I broke the law. The law doesn't fix me. It just shows where I'm broken. And this is where this idea of blessed picks up. It picks up right in that space where I'm left here to see my failure and my sin and my shortfall. He picks up and he's like, listen, if you want more than what the law can give, I'm going to teach you some things. You will be blessed if you do that. Blessed are, fulfilled are, what the law can't give you are, the poor in spirit. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is crazy. What in the world does that even mean? The poor in spirit. It's a strange term, and at first it seems really weak and passive, and like, who would ever do that or want to be marked that way? I can't ever imagine saying to you or you saying to me, man, you're looking real poor in spirit today, Tim. And I don't think I'd take that as a compliment. I'd, be, I'd think you're like, what, am I depressed this morning? Am I not smiling enough? Am I not encouraging? I mean, by our instinct, we look at that phrase, we're like, that can't be a, be a good thing. 
This same phrase, this idea is used in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, over and over and over and over and over again to refer to material prosperity, and this is, or material lack. This is probably the best way for you and me to think about this. That the idea, let's use a metaphor for a minute, move out of poor in spirit and talk about poor in resources or poverty. Because this is the exact metaphor that's happening. In the Old Testament, the idea of people who are in poverty, they're pictured as people who cry out to God, and God helps, he restores, he delivers. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard it said about people who are poor in material things, and that you know, because you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament, you know the the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that God delivers people in poverty. That's the story of the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. Now he's taking that idea and putting it into our spiritual lives. And he's saying, blessed are you when you are poor in spirit. For years, it's going to be, well, now what does that mean? Okay, so it's a good thing to be poor? Like, I don't... People who aren't poor don't necessarily want to become poor. And people who are poor are like, well, you know, I'd, I'd probably like to move on or at least have some resources to support me. Like, there isn't generally a long line for who wants to be poor. This isn't the way it works. But Jesus says this, yep, yep, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, interesting. Here's the thing. When I have, when I'm no longer poor materially, and I have all that I need. I no longer need to pray the way that people prayed in the Psalms. I no longer need to pray to God, give me my daily bread. I had two eggs over medium this morning with a little bit of salt and pepper on them, cooked just right. Thank you very much. Okay. Two pieces of toast. Go one with each egg. I like the dip in the eggs. Jen thinks that's disgusting. Are you, is anyone with me on the dip in the eggs? Thank you. I have a lot of support in the audience, just want to say. All right. And you know what I did not have to do? This morning, I did not need to pray. Or last night, I did not need to pray. God, please allow bread to show up in the drawer tomorrow morning. Like, God, we don't have bread. So I'm going to pray that tonight you'll bring bread to our house. I don't need to pray for that. And so I don't. Do you? You know, I, I don't pray for the things that I have. I don't pray for the things that exist. I have, I, we have bread in the drawer. And we also have bread in the freezer for when we run out of the bread in the drawer. And then we run out of that bread, there's more bread in the store which we can go buy. Like, I don't pray for the bread because I don't need to because I don't feel like I'm poor in bread. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. When you realize, my friend, you cannot get all the bread that you need spiritually. Blessed are you when you realize, stop depending on yourself. Blessed are you because that poor in spirit creates a dependency on me that otherwise you don't have. I don't pray for the bread. I don't feel like I need to. And when I take that same principle over to my spiritual life, God, do I, do I need you? Do I need you? And here's what we can do. Because in the world of material wealth, we can own things and accumulate things to the point where we don't feel a need materially. I don't need to pray for that. We can if we're not careful accumulate things in our spiritual lives and we think, I am banking. I'm banking. I'm investing. I'm saving my church attendance. I'm saving my morality. I'm banking away my prayers. I'm banking away the fact that I only listen to Christian music, praise music, maybe only Hillsong, maybe only GPC worship stuff. That's all I listen to. Like I'm going to bank and put away the things that I do I'm going to lean on that. And God, I'm not sure that I'm even going to 
pray for my daily bread anymore. Pray for my daily need for you. Because what do I need that for? And Jesus begins with this crowd around him. And this is amazing. He begins. He says, bless you who are poor in spirit. Years ago, years ago, Charles Spurgeon, hadn't Spurgeon, preached a message about this same idea. And here's what he said, particularly about this concept I just talked about. He said, we must not be satisfied with external religion. We need something more than the form of godliness. We require the bringing of the truth of God into our very soul. In other words, we can't just be satisfied thinking, and I'm in church Sundays, like, why do I need God throughout the week? I listen to that song and listen to that station that plays in the background. Why do I need God? I, I read my devotional thing in the morning. Why do I need God? I, I'm only inclined to talk to people in Greek. Why, why do I need God? I have that on my calendar. Why do I need God? Those are all, I'm not saying those are bad things, but the point is if we're not careful, we lean onto this external reality of things that we do and miss this depth of soul where at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, I wake up and I'm like, God, I need, I need you. I'm poor in spirit. Like, I I need you. The New English Bible translates this verse this way and says this, How blessed are those who know their need of God. What a great translation this is. How blessed are those who know their need of God. It's an amazing, amazing statement. How blessed are you who know you. When you wake up in the morning, when you put your head down on the pillow at night, you realize, and I realize, God, I understand. I need you. Today, God, I got a, got a meeting with my uh, staff today. I'm going to be talking to some community leaders here this week. I'm preparing uh, a presentation to do. I'm going to be interacting with my kids and my spouse later on. I'm, I'm volunteering over here later on. And if we're not careful, the day moves forward and the week moves forward and the season moves forward. And the question is, like, where in the world in this space do I even need God's intervention. Which Jesus says, blessed are you, happy, fulfilled are you when you see your need of God. And then he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He finishes with that. It's amazing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea of the kingdom of heaven, by the way, is a really um, dynamic phrase. And it actually refers to things both in the past and the present and the future. There were past expectations of the kingdom of God that were true in the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel that we're looking forward to what might come. There are present implications for the kingdom, and there's also a future for the kingdom that we still have not yet to experience. And what Jesus is saying in this moment, blessed are you who are poor in spirit for yours is, he uses a present tense verb, like right here, right now, in this space, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is that you will experience, and I will experience, the ethics, the morality of the kingdom of heaven in the space in which you work and I walk in which we live. Right here in Lancaster County in 2018, you will experience and I will experience the ethics, the morality, the life of the kingdom here and now. Not a future time where we look forward to to Christ's return and all that. I mean, that's good. But actually right here, right now, yours is the kingdom of heaven when you do this. Which is a very interesting and powerful, powerful statement. So as I look at this, here's what I think. I'm trying to imagine Jesus coming to this mountainside. And hundreds of thousands of people sitting there. 
And I asked myself, what would, what would the most powerful people in our world have to say to a crowd that came to hear them speak? What would the most powerful person in our world, the most powerful people in our world, say when they finally have an audience with people who are there to hear them speak? What would the speechwriters create in that space? Because this is exactly what's happening right here. I will tell you what the speechwriters would not create. This. This is not a dynamic way to start a movement. This is not a dynamic way to get people excited about your cause. To stand up in front of all these people who come to hear you speak because they've seen your miracles, they've seen you touch people, they've seen people healed. They're like, hey, what's the first thing this guy has to say? Blessed is, blessed are, the poor in spirit. That doesn't that get your engines going? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really? And I have to ask, what would I say to these people? But Jesus says this exact thing. This is the opening. And isn't it profound that he says it? This is how he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now to me, this means not only the value and priority of a, a humble acknowledgement that as I wake up today and as you wake up today and as we walk through our day that I need God desperately. But I believe there's also an element here that we can't miss and that is this. If I don't in my soul, in my heart, if I don't feel a need for God's presence, I'd have to ask myself, am I believing God for enough? Do I need him? Am I believing God that he would want to accomplish in me anything more than what I can do on my own? Am I believing God for enough big things? Am I believing God for things that take more strength than what I have? Am I believing God spiritually that he would want to work in me to change my neighbors and my life and turn me around inside out to be a witness to people who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ because he can do that? If I believe that, You think I need him. I need him. I need him. But if I don't need him, I have to ask the difficult question of if I'm believing him for anything at all. Or if I'm quite adequate in my own accord. And this is why I believe Jesus begins with this powerful statement about power and influence. How blessed are you when you know your need of God because the things that you are trying to do, the things that may be in your heart and wired in there, cannot be done without the work of God coming in and landing and moving and changing your life and mine. And so I have to ask myself the difficult question. God, do do I even need you? Or has my spiritual life become like the bread in my drawer? Yep, it's there. See you in the morning. Wheat bread. You'll be back tomorrow. There it is. There it goes. And without a thought, That gives me strength for the morning. But I don't pray for it. I don't lean into that. And I have to ask that difficult question. God, do I even, quite honestly, do I I even need you? Come on, do I need you? I don't don't think I need God. I don't think I need God to show up to church on Sunday morning. I don't know if I need God to listen to Christian music. I don't know if I need God to do a whole lot of things. I don't even know if I need God to be ethical or moral. We can process all that, but I'm just saying that there, there's a lot of things that I'd say. There's a lot of people who would shake their fist at God and say, I don't even think he exists, and they could do a lot of the things that you and I do. And, and Jesus begins, how blessed are you when you see 
your need of God and that part of your soul wakes up in the morning, that part of your soul going to bed at night, you're like, man, wow, God, I am in need of you. And if you don't show up, this business that I run will only go as far as my limitations. And the people that I hang out with, they may never see God because they didn't even see Him in me. Because I don't need you. I mean, I, I kind of want you, but I don't really need you like that. And this is, this, this is the reality. Of how blessed are you? How blessed are you? Let me come back to that for a moment. This picks up where the law drops off. And so, if you have never felt the joy and life and power that comes from knowing Jesus, it is possible that all that this has meant for you or for me all that spirituality could have meant is that I'm going to obey the regulations that my parents have handed down to me, that my ancestors have handed down to me, that the church has handed down to me, and all that my spiritual life is is really it's a following of the regulations, the rhythm, the systems. I come to church on Sundays. I do this on Mondays. I don't, don't curse. I don't drink. I don't whatever. You know, this is one of the things I don't do. And somewhere along the line, you lose passion. There's, you're joyless. You're critical. You're pessimistic. There's no joy, there's no life. And listen, I am there sometimes. I'm not like pointing the finger, I'm just telling you, this is a reality of all of us. And this is where Jesus begins, how blessed are you? You will have the fulfilled, happy, fullness of life when you're poor in spirit and recognize, I need God desperately. And so let me encourage you with two things. Number one, let me encourage you, simply. As you wake up in the morning, as you go through your day, I would encourage you to find three times in your day Mealtime is a great time if you're driving to a meeting, if you're at a meeting, whatever it might be, if you're going from class to class, if you're leaving school or going to school. I encourage you to whisper a simple prayer. God, make this day different because of my dependency on you. Like, I need you, God, to show up in this space today. Use me as you will. This regular returning to this acknowledgement, God, I, I, I need you here, now, is a profound habit to develop. Secondly, let me encourage you to ask this question and then try to answer it. Do you have someone, do you have someone who can be ruthlessly honest with you? Who you are able to ask, um, friend, do you see this dependency in my life? Because you know it and I know it too. Pride is the last thing that we see, but it's the first thing others see. Right? Isn't that true? It's the last thing I see in me, but it's the first thing you see in me. You pick it up before I do. Well before I do. Sometimes years before I do. That's the insidious nature of pride in my life. And so I need, I need, we all need, friends who can be ruthlessly honest and say, listen, Tim, here's how this came off. I'm afraid that you're not developing. You're certainly not exhibiting a dependency on God in this space. And if you don't have that, and if I don't have that, I can almost guarantee you that this will not be a part of my life and won't be a part of your life either. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And that check of who do I have who can help me ask that question. So, as Jesus began with hundreds if not thousands of people on the mountainside next to him, he said, listen, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Not because I want you to be weak. Not because I want you to be passive. Not because I want you to be a wet noodle somewhere in the universe. I want to use you. But in order to use you, 
in order for your power, your influence, your ideas, your creativity, your passion to be exhibited, for the neighborhood to be changed, for your community, for your organization, for your business, for your school to be changed, people to be changed. I want you to know how blessed are you. I want you to know you need me. You need me. Don't ever forget that. And when you remember that, you experience life in the kingdom right now, in this space and time. Jesus goes on to teach seven more principles, the next of which we will get to next week. We'd be glad to have you come back for that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to pause and rally around this teaching idea here of our need and our dependency on on you. And I thank you for the good gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross for us that we might have life, that we might be an example, that he might be an example uh, to others and to us. And so I pray that in this space where we stop and see Jesus' teaching and the model of his life, that you would give us the courage again to lean into our dependency, to ask again, God, for you to guide us in the spaces that we work, in our homes and in our schools, in our businesses, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, that we can be people who are dependent because we understand that we need and we have been made by the omnipotent hand of God We have not made ourselves, and we will never make ourselves. So give us that humility of heart that leads to our power coming from an acknowledgement of your great goodness and your kindness and your salvation for us. So we thank you. We thank you for being our Savior, for being the one who came to sacrifice for us and teach us things like this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.